app on Google is sitting there and saying, hey, y'all, no, you're not allowed to do that. You have to use our version of this. You have to use our system. And for the privilege, we're going to take a third of your revenue. This is Christian Owens, and he just helped take down a monopoly. Epic Games sued Apple and Google on the same day. Unfortunately, they lost the Apple case, but things went a bit differently with Google. Project Hug was basically, we're going to write you really, really big checks for hundreds of millions of dollars. It's kind of obvious this was to discourage people from creating their own app stores or doing anything like that. Epic beat Google. And while good for Fortnite, this case highlights a major victory for all developers. A lot of these guys are small businesses. We're not talking about people who are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year here. We're talking about people who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe a couple of million dollars, and they have a small team. Christian has a ton of insight into what went down, what it means, and where we go from here. I think we'll see a complete reversal where they will open up all of this stuff to competition, they'll figure out some other ways to monetize, and then they'll make everyone think it was their idea the whole time. A week after we recorded this interview, Apple did just that. From Paddle, my name is Ben Hillman, and let's protect the hustle. Christian, thank you so much for coming on Protect the Hustle. I'd be surprised if people don't know who you are already, but it, for the folks that don't, do you mind giving us um, your name, your title, and just kind of a brief background of who you are and what you do? I'm Christian Owens. I founded Paddle in 2012, was running the company as CEO up until about um, a year ago, and then I, I stepped into the amorphous role that is exec chairman. I know you're much more heavily involved in working on the product specifically right now. What is your area of expertise? What's your what's your background in that sense? I built the first version of Paddle kind of over 10 years ago and sort of really have just tried to stay as close as I can to the, the product that we build and, and how we help people building apps and, and software um, sell that, those apps and that software around the world. So Still very focused on payments and kind of our core product of, of billing and then um, the the tax elements of that and things like that. And really, how do we make kind of really great billing experiences um, for everyone all around the world? We are recording this in January of 2024. A little less than a month ago, a verdict was given in the Epic Games versus Google trial that you were a part of. Uh, you were a witness in that case. When did this trial start? How did it come about? And what led us up to today? For as long as the app stores existed with this sort of 30% cut that that Apple and, and Google as well take, there has been sort of developer pushback in, in some way or another um, around it. And there's been a ton of like false starts of people trying to contest this fee. And really what we see today with this kind of amping up kind of started in earnest in, in probably 2020 when Epic released a, a version of Fortnite, um, the, the popular game, um, with their own payment mechanism in it. And then obviously this instantly within 24 hours or so was removed from the app stores, sort of both Google Play and, and the Apple App Store forcibly, citing that they breached the developer agreement on these terms of service. And Epic, I think, anticipated this was going to happen and immediately sued Apple and Google in two separate um, federal lawsuits. And we've basically, for the last three, four years, just been seeing kind of these cases kind of play out. So there are obviously like civil cases between between Epic and, and Apple and Google. And then it kind of alongside that, various governments around the world have sort of taken notice 
um, of these cases and and started their own proceedings, whether it's kind of antitrust stuff or whether it's um, pro competition kind of regulators around the world have also kind of kind of stuck their their kind of foot in the race as well and 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 either kind of expressed an interest to do something in this area or kind of actively pursuing kind of legislation. I know. So there's two cases. There is Epic Games versus Google. There is Epic Games versus Apple. And I think I'm remembering this correctly. You testified in both of the cases, correct? I think I provided evidence in both, like testified in court in the, the Google one, but not, not in the Apple one. So there's these two cases. There's Google versus Epic Games. There's Apple versus Epic Games. But primarily, we're going to focus on the Google versus Epic Games today because that we just had, I believe it was the middle of December, the verdict came about for that case. And it was a pretty swift verdict. The verdict came down um, in Epic's favor. Essentially, kind of, they have to rule on kind of a dozen different things all at once. They're all kind of like interdependent on each other and contingent on each other. But kind of, I think the TLDR is, is that the jury in that case ultimately decided that Google was exerting monopoly power over the Play Store. And I think as a part of that, they also determined that when thinking about like what is a monopoly, you have to define a market. So I think the big thing in this case was, is the market all software? Is the market all software that runs on phones? Or is the, is the market all software that runs on Android? Or is the market Google Play in itself? And obviously, Google was shooting for what is the biggest possible definition of this kind of that can exist um, of like, we want it to be all software. Um, and Epic was shooting for the narrowest possible version of this of, of like software on Google um, on Android phones or on, on Google devices. And I think, so I, essentially the way that the verdict came down was that the, that the jury determined that actually this market is narrower. It is software that runs on Android phones and that kind of when looked at sort of this question is of is Google a monopoly kind of with that lens on it um, that yes Google kind of do exert power over that market in that they kind of take a pretty large fee they force a lot of developers to use the Play Store even if some alternatives are available and in the instances where there are alternatives available they kind of make those pretty crappy with big warnings and sort of stickers and stuff like that that make it really difficult for actually developers to make that a viable choice for them to to sell their app. Yeah. And I, I know that Google was trying to make it out that like, oh no, this isn't a monopoly. There are other choices. But in reality, it was sort of a illusion of choice. I think it was what the, the Samsung place or the Samsung store and or Galaxy store and other other stores technically were there was available. There was a load of stuff that, that kind of came out during this. And I'm sure some of it um, we'll get into, but there was some of this stuff and there was so many documents and so much kind of discovery that went on. It's kind of impossible for any one person to know it all. But like, I think the stuff to do with Samsung kind of came down to um, like, this is a really popular store, but then we saw loads of documents that kind of evidence that Google had kind of tried to suppress that as a store. And even in the instances where like Samsung phones could come pre-installed with that. They had to also have Google Play on them and, and things like this. And it became this this illusion of choice um, between those stores. And also, it was really only kind of a choice if you were kind of the maker of a, a device yourself, because all of these uh, kind of the big argument around sideloading or you can download an application directly from a developer kind of went out the window when you realize it's a 
16 step process or something in order to actually install one of these applications on your phone. And that included other app stores. So if you wanted to go and download an alternative app store to be able to install apps, you kind of had to go through this 16 step process as a consumer in order to get that thing, that store onto your device to begin with. And I think that the kind of with that, the, the jury sort of saw right through it. And so you spoke in front of the jury in the Google case, and you've given us your, your background and why you're qualified for this. Can you talk through a little bit about your role in the trial? I know that it's been difficult for me to get my hands on like actual court transcripts. I've just been able to go off of Verge. Google wasn't painting you out to be like this altruistic individual, it seemed like. But I think this is just like the, the case with, with any of these, like giving evidence in a court or testifying in this way. There's obviously two sides. Right. One side agrees with your point of view. The other side tries to discredit you in any possible way. And it's, and it's sort of, and in, in this instance, I think Epic, when they were questioning me, Epic definitely went in with a, a stance of like, let's kind of use Christian and Paddle to demonstrate to the jury that actually the idea that there are no alternatives or that it would be too expensive or too cumbersome um, or just too difficult for developers to use something other than this built-in system, let's show that that's kind of bullshit. Like, let's show that that actually there are viable alternatives. And, and really the only restriction here is is the fact that Google is either in some instances directly not letting people use them and in other instances sort of making it so difficult and substantially discouraging. And I think that they kind of wanted to portray that and, and sort of so their questions were really along, along the the feasibility of a solution. Google's kind of went in the direction of of wouldn't you and people like you make a, a ton of money if this happened? And like my answer to that was like, yeah, like no one's asking, we're not asking for anybody to kind of like back a truck full of cash up to our door and say like, here you go. I think all that we want in this and and kind of obviously ethics motivations are different, but kind of all of Pamela wants in this instance is the ability to kind of try and make a bunch of money. Like there's not, we're not asking for any, any like favoritism or, or kind of some guarantee that that we're going to invest in building this product and then tons of people are going to use it by default. We're kind of just asking for permission to play. And if Google builds a better product or someone else builds a better product, that product should win. Uh But it shouldn't win by default because nobody else is allowed to play the game. Because I know that we, this isn't unbiased reporting that I'm talking about here. We have a vested, you know, Paddle does have a vested interest in this. And this working out, but I know that you, what you represent is, I know, I'm, I know you've had conversations with developers, with folks who use Paddle, who are kind of getting a little bit screwed by this scenario. Is what it, are, are there, I mean, yeah. you don't have to give me like specific examples of folks that this has happened to, but I, I wonder what, what has been the perspective from the developer in this sense? I think there is a few different perspectives. Like when you, when you speak to developers, one is very much this frustration that they have to maintain two or three different ways of selling their products across different platforms. It's like on the web, I use this one thing. On Android, I have to use this other thing. And on iOS, I have to use this different thing. Actually, it's just like the burden of like keeping all of those things in sync and then having to deal with these things in, in, in different places. So there's like that very kind of operational, pragmatic 
um, version of that. And then there are the other the other reasons, kind of, and it kind of really depends business to business. But when you think that I don't know, say we're talking about a SaaS product, and someone's selling a SaaS product for for ten bucks a month on the web, and they have a pretty solid thriving business, and obviously they have costs, they have infrastructure, they're marketing, they have all of these things, but they're making nine fifty on every 10 bucks they sell. Um, and they've built like a pretty sustainable business around that. It's profitable or it's break even or kind of they know how to model it. And then for a really arbitrary reason, just the platform that they happen to be selling on, like taking seven bucks on every 10 rather than 950 on every 10, just because they're selling it on a phone. Um, and it's exactly the same product. In a lot of these instances, you buy it in one place and you can use it everywhere. And I think that sort of, there's obviously the operational reasons of not wanting to have five different sources of like where the revenue is coming from and having to deal with that. There's another one of like, I've proven like I have a model where it only costs me 50 cents to take this transaction. Like I know that that's how much it costs and I'm driving the customers to go and download my app myself. Like I'm, my, I'm still paying for that marketing. I'm still doing all of that work. But arbitrarily, I have to pay another two fifty to process that transaction just because it's on a different device. I think that that's just incredibly frustrating for these developers who are already a lot of these guys are small businesses. We're not talking about people who are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year here. We're talking about people who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe a couple of million dollars, and they have a small team, and it just feels like they're kind of building this business and building this product and make getting to product market fit and figuring out their pricing and making all this stuff work is hard enough. And then they kind of have this extra kind of 25% tax kind of on their revenue. Um, that, that is just a, a huge headwind. Right. And, it, and it's kind of really interesting to see people kind of, especially like first time founders, they do all of this work and then they're like, wait, what? Like, Why? <laughs> And what I hear there is that there's there's an understanding that, yes, if you're charging $10 for, for various number of many different reasons, whether it's tax and what have you, you're not necessarily going to get every single cent of those $10. There has to be a little bit of percentage given away. But the issue here is that it's not only is 30% significant and 30% is a huge difference for um, these small businesses between 10%. Even there isn't even competition allowed to bring that thirty percent down. You know that's that. Yeah. That seems to be my understanding it's, of it. It's people sitting there being like, either I've done the work to kind of build this infrastructure myself, or I'm willing to do the work to build this infrastructure myself. Hey Apple, hey Google, you don't actually need to do anything. Like let me do it. I'll take this burden off of you that you're going to charge me thirty percent for. Sort of. In that instance where they've been like, I'll do the work, I'll invest the resources, Apple and Google are sitting there and saying, hey, on, no, you're not allowed to do that. You have to use our version of this. You have to use our system. And for the privilege, we're going to take a third of your revenue. And and I guess the, the realization I'm having right now is this is where the sort of like what what you're speaking to is not necessarily there's there's even this will apply to folks that won't even be using Paddle and may never even be a fit for Paddle where it's folks that are still just across the board, anyone, not even if they're like a target customer of paddles, 30, that 30% can be debilitating. I am not concerned if 
nobody, if anybody who ever like listens to this sort of doesn't use Paddle at all, or obviously I'd love them to, but it's just like excluded our obvious bias for five seconds and just be, and just like think about it objectively. And it's like, okay, wait, I can take this payment over the internet via a mechanism that isn't just because the app was downloaded from the app store, by a mechanism that isn't there, and it costs me 5%. But just because the person pushed the button in this other place, no other reason, it's 30%. And it, it applies to everybody. And then this is where it gets like really absurd. Like This is where it gets super crazy, which is all of the apps that you use that just so happened to not be a digital product, not be a subscription or a streaming service or something like that. None of them, any of this applies to. So when you buy something on Amazon or you order food from DoorDash or you take an Uber or like whatever it is, like none of those transactions apply. Even though they're kind of, they're using that button, they're in the app, they're, it's downloaded from the app store. They're able to utilize all of this infrastructure that they've built elsewhere on the web or wherever to take these transactions at lower cost. Um, because I think Apple and Google and others recognize that it would be too difficult. It would either be too difficult for them to provide a competitive service in for those types of products, or kind of alternatively, that actually it would destroy those businesses. Like if you think that sort of maybe DoorDash makes like two bucks when you kind of spend 50, like taking 30% of that revenue, just kind of right. mathematically isn't going to work anymore. Yeah. Like DoorDash doesn't exist. So they exclude those businesses from it, even though the actual underlying mechanism of how these payments are processed is exactly the same. So it, it's really, it, it then goes from absurd to kind of a little bit malicious. You're like, okay, it's absurd that you were kind of charging me this 30% anyway. And now you find out that there are this whole swathe of businesses that it doesn't even apply to. And actually, it only applies to me because I'm selling software because you can. Holy shit. Like, this is a tax. This is like, this is you're just sort of charging me this money because you can charge it to me. Not because you need to, because you've proven for all of these other applications that actually you don't need to. And that you're fine with the safety and everything else of all of these other payment systems. It's literally just because you can. That was the impetus to like get involved here is that this. Just just that thirty percent alone. If we want to like be reductive about it, that thirty percent alone is this is crazy. Like it should be this is lower. I know there's a number of other facts that we've talked about, but what I specifically want to get into is it gets worse than just you're charging higher than you should be. From what I understand, this came out in Discovery or it came out during the trial that Project Hug. And for our listeners, if you're not familiar, Project Hug was this initiative by Google where they approached 22 game developers, Activision, Nintendo, Riot Games, with huge sums of money to keep them in the in the Play Store. You could launch on other app stores, but you had to launch on Google the same day. And they even offered Epic $147 million to launch Fortnite there. It sounds to me like a blatant bribery right there. I know that uh, in a similar sense, this I don't think this was a part of Project Hug, but Spotify also cut a deal in which they process their own payments and they only pay Google 4%. Yeah, th there's a lot to get angry about. And what I just mentioned, beyond just 30%, there's also this. Talk to us about why Epic Games' characterization of a bribe, it didn't ultimately plan, pan out in the proceedings. Yeah, I, I think there is, I think there's a, there's a couple of kind of like pieces sort of 
below the surface here. I think one is is that for all intents and purposes, it looks a lot like a bribe. It was effectively effectively what they were doing is is giving these developers huge sums of money. Usually, and the whole idea of this this project hug kind of came from the fact that they were kind of hearing rumblings from some of these developers that they were going to um, start their own app stores, competing app stores to to Google Play. Um, I think Activision was one of the, yeah. the larger ones, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure. They were thinking Activision obviously has a huge portfolio of different games. They own and they've been acquiring a number of game developers. And they are, essentially, if you're at Activision, you're thinking, hey, like we already have hundreds of millions of people who play our games. Like, why wouldn't we just launch our own store where you can buy all of our games from and kind of we can market it to the hundreds of millions of people and we don't have to pay these these 30% fees anymore. So Google created this thing called kind of ominously, not ominously called Project Hug. And Project Hug was basically, we're going to write you really, really big checks for hundreds of millions of dollars to encourage you to distribute your apps or games on Google Play at the same time or earlier or kind of um, kind of on par with anyone or anywhere else you distribute them. This was, it's kind of obvious this was to discourage people from creating their own app stores or doing anything like that. I think in the the case itself and, and sort of subsequent kind of their arguments were these are sort of like prepayments or kind of marketing credit. So some of these, when you hear $150 million or whatever it is, Sometimes it's $75 million in cash and then $75 million in co-marketing. So for every dollar you spend, we also spend a dollar on, on marketing your game. Um, but effectively, it was kind of subsidizing the cost of this 30% for these developers. So you could say, and all of these deals were over a certain period of time. So you can pretty easily go, actually, that game makes a billion dollars a year on Google Play. It's They're paying $300 million a year in fees. We're going to pay them $200 million a year in these incentives, which effectively kind of dependent on how you put it in Excel, says that they're paying 10% rather than 30 because you're giving them a bunch of money back or a bunch of benefit back. So that's how it became kind of not a a bribe. And I think they pointed to other industries where things like this happen, like when you maybe do a, a Netflix deal and you get a bunch of money up front or you sign a book publishing deal and you get a bunch of money up like an like a signing a bonus or, if you will like kind of yeah. stuff like that the argument was that, that this doesn't actually make a big difference these are marketing ex- incentives for for big thing for big things and that kind of like you can sort of giving them all of the benefit of the doubt in the world you can kind of get there you can kind of be like okay co-marketing we're going to be spending money the developer themselves have to spend money on this stuff but then you see some of these other deals that were cut like the the spotify deal where spotify is effectively paying zero percent transaction fees on on some of their revenue and only having to pay three or four percent of their their revenue for transactions that they process themselves this is outside of any kind of kind of true sanctioned program that was available to all developers. And throughout this whole thing, um, Google denied any of these things were happening. There was a big kind of drama um, kind of during the case itself of of um, Google trying to not get the, or to get the, the percentage that Spotify was paying, this 4%, 
excluded from the record so it would never be released and we wouldn't be having this conversation. And I think the quote, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but it was like, this would materially palm our ability to negotiate with people hmm. if people knew that Spotify was paying 4%. There's, there's something in that of like, you don't want anybody to know about this deal or the terms of the deal or anything. Like you're willing to go to these lengths to prevent that from ha- getting out and happening. Like maybe there's something going on there that, that sort of is is slightly different to the way that you're presenting it to everybody and, and, and how this is working. And this, if we can compare this a bit to the Apple case for a second, because this seems where the like exact difference is that, or one of, one of the one of the differences, basically the reason that the Apple case, uh, Apple won in that instance, and in this case, Google lost, is because it is a closed system. It's a walled garden. From what we can tell, they don't have any of this like kind of uh, paper trail of these not actually bribes, but these payments, um, these discounts, if you will, to these other companies. Can you speak to a bit why, I mean, feel free to correct me on any of that, but why why Apple was the victor in that case and Google was the loser in this case? I think there are three core reasons that Google lost and sort of Apple won. (laughs) I think one is this was a jury trial in the instance of Google, and it was a bench trial, kind of just a judge in the instance of Apple. So I think that actually sort of the level of 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 argument that you go into sort of and also like the way that you kind of communicate this to a, a jury of of people who maybe don't maybe they're not as clued up on exactly all of these markets and definitions and things like this i think that actually in the instance of of a jury trial like you get down to um, the real essence of the argument as opposed to these kind of legal technicalities and, and, and things such as this that I think you can rely more on when it's just a judge who's sort of been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years and, and kind of you can make those those sort of um, technical arguments um, too. I think the second, this was, um, I think it was a quote in an article from from someone at Epic, but Apple didn't write anything down, I think was the quote. Of like there was far less actual documentation and evidence of 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 things that were happening, kind of things like Project Hug. Not only did we have Project Hug, but we had all of the internal like motivation behind it, which made it fairly transparent that they were trying to stop competition. And I think the third thing is Google. It was actually pretty shocking, kind of watching kind of some of the the trial and, and reading through some of the the coverage of kind of how Google kind of conducted business internally. There was all of this, a good two or three days of the trial was spent on the fact that Google was effectively deleting evidence. All of this documentation about all of these programs that were like auto-deleted inside Google, even after they got the subpoenas um, for the trial, they were still deleting chat logs and evidence and sort of all of these things. And they were kind of marking documents as legally privileged even if they weren't, they were sort of just basically everything that was happening or everything that they were creating were getting mocked as legally privileged. And I think that that whole set of scenario played out in front of a jury. And then the judge said sort of effectively, like, you could assume that all of the stuff that they deleted wouldn't necessarily look favorably on Google. Like you can't you could assume that the things that they deleted like would have helped Google in that case. Right. Or wouldn't have helped them as it may be. Like it would have looked bad on them. And I think that sort of 
that was actually a surprisingly large portion of the trial itself was sort of these sort of bad behaviors that Google had and bad hygiene that they had internally around like deleting documents and evidence and things like this. And I think that that in comparison, in combination with things like Project Hug, things like the Spotify deal, thing, all of these things together, it's sort of like you kind of paint a picture of Google, which is like these guys are really looking out for themselves and, and no one else. And kind of then the jury kind of came to that conclusion um, on their own. In the Apple case, it was a lot more kind of like technical arguments. Hey. And I think that one of these technical arguments that did come through in that case and actually was ruled in ethics favor was this sort of anti-steering provision, which basically said that Google wasn't allowed to tell um, developers that they weren't able to communicate with their customers that you could buy this outside of the App Store for less, um, which was one of the things that they were doing before. I think in in the Google case, we saw a much more holistic kind of argument towards or against sort of the monopoly as a whole. And in the Apple case, it was much more like the technical details of of different behaviors and different terms within the contract and they were sort of ruled on individually. From what I've from what I've seen, this is like one of the most significant victories in a, in a monopoly case since like Microsoft in the in the early two thousands, late nineties. I don't know if you want to go off of what the result of those cases were, or if maybe you have some what you think like insight into into this, but the release of this podcast will be either right after or, or around the time when, because um, we have the verdict, but we don't have the punishment yet. Yeah. I know that the expectation is that there's going to be an appeal. Do you have any insight or ideas on what you think that the punishment that they're going to hand out is going to be? I think, I, I don't. I don't. No have, is fine. No is a good only, fine answer. The only, yeah. No, I think the only thing that we can really look at is sort of what's happened in almost like, in terms of how Epic's going to react and how Google's going to react to whatever the, the kind of punishment is, I think we can probably look to the Apple case. In the Apple case, it was immediately appealed. And then sort of has been through this process of kind of like legal ping pong between different courts and different things trying to... Um, and I think that that same thing's most likely going to happen here as well. Um, I don't think Google's just going to roll over and, and be like, nope, like, how oh, bad, you got us. Um, kind of, we'll, we'll do whatever you say. I think this legal ping pong is going to happen um, as well. In terms of like what the actual punishment will be, I can only say what I hope, which is I hope that the the judge takes into consideration both sort of the fact that the jury did determine that this was a monopoly and that, that Google were acting poorly, and also kind of Google's bad behavior around kind of these sort of bribe payments that weren't bribes and secret deals that weren't secret deals like with Spotify and others. And actually, I think like it doesn't need to be a complex verdict. I think it can be one that's quite simple, which is allow developers to use third-party payment mechanisms. If you need to change the pricing model or the billing model of, of Google Play for developers so that they maybe pay a subscription fee or something to be listed in the Play Store and maybe that fee is waived if you use Google's payment. Like whatever it is, I, I think it can be quite simple, but I'm just hoping that kind of the real crux of all of this stuff is allow these developers to use alternative payment methods um, or payment systems to sell these products that don't come with a, a 30% fee. And I think hopefully um, as long as that that piece of it makes it in, I, I think it's it's... We don't have to overcomplicate this. The one big win that came from the Apple case, like there was actually a, a one good thing that came out of it. 
yeah. uh, which was the Apple is required to allow these external payment links, something that we provide at Paddle. And it seems like Epic knew this and was trying to show how a company like Paddle can actually like stand up to a company like Google. I think one of the, that was one of the big things that came out of like a win that came out of the Apple case was this anti-steering provision, um, which was essentially as part of the developer agreement that, that, that developers had with Apple. Not only do they have to use Apple's payment system for kind of transactions that occurred with apps downloaded from the app store, but they almost had to like pretend that you couldn't buy the apps any other way. Like you couldn't, not only could you not like link out from an app to like a website to pay for something, but you could, you couldn't even like mention it um, in the app to say, you can go to our website to buy this thing. Right. Sort of that was one of the things that was that was still upheld kind of through the um, kind of the 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 Apple case itself. I think that they still haven't been required to comply with it yet because it's still going through that kind of legal ping pong appeals process. But really kind of that was that demonstrated i think that actually there can be a solution here that is as simple as allow these developers to use whatever payment system or mechanism that they use elsewhere and just be able to link to it even if you can't do it in an app even if you can't sort of do it directly with like apple pay or google pay or whatever the the um the kind of default system is like just let these developers direct customers to another place that they can buy this stuff. And I think Paddle was sort of used as an example of there are hundreds of developers on Paddle who sell through Paddle on the web or they sell through Paddle on kind of desktop on Mac and on PC. Um, and they also have iOS and Android apps as well. In the case of those developers, they can't even tell those people in those apps <laughs> that you could also go and buy it on the web. So I think that if nothing else happens, I think that that, because it's it, like you you laugh then because it, it sounds so absurd that you can't even be like, by the way, guys, you can go and buy this somewhere else. Um, like you can't even mention it. Um, so I think that that will kind of be upheld either way. It sounds, it feels like that's the direction it's going. And, and even though Epic lost this Apple case for all kind of intense purposes, they lost it like that that still kind of made it through. So I, I think there are hundreds of examples of, of developers who are who would love to be able to do that, who are existing Paddle customers. Um, and this doesn't just apply to Paddle, it applies to kind of any mechanism that they use to take these, these payments sort of online. Today, these developers aren't even allowed to acknowledge the fact that that happens. And that just seems, seems crazy. It seems like that this is going to be unfortunately a long ongoing battle and, and hopefully there's going to be consistent you know, wins, but it there it sounds like they're just going to be sort of small wins. Something that really stuck out to me when you talked about this earlier was the providing that good billing experience, billing, tax, finances. I'll speak from myself. It's like it's always something that is sort of aggravating the the loopholes that you have to jump through, even even just like from the customer side or even doing your own finances or anything like that. In this case, yes, the ideal would be to do it in the app. You don't actually have to leave or anything like that. Let's start with just being able to open on the web, just being like, yes, you can pay this other place and then we'll, you can come back here and confirm that. That's still not a excellent experience because you have to go elsewhere and then come back. But in the grand scheme of things, it is a small incremental step that can hopefully lead to eventually this getting resolved. But it doesn't sound like that it's going to be resolved soon. <laughs> 
if if I had to make a a prediction on what I think is going to happen, I think that there's really two players who matter in terms of making these decisions, and it's Apple and Google. Like we can talk about other people who have app stores and things like this, but really they're round, they're so insignificant and rounding errors in comparison to these two two kind of behemoths, um, and they kind of follow each other. Like when one does more so Google following Apple, but like when Apple does something or sets a precedent to do something, Google tends to follow suit. That's why kind of we see Apple's fee is 30%, Google's fee is 30%. Apple has a small business program that if you do less than a million bucks a year, you can kind of get that fee reduced to 15. Google has a small business program that if you do less than a million bucks a year, you can get like these things tend to mirror each other. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to sort of see this like tit for tat in in the legal system with these kind of judgments and various cases in like the the Epic versus Google Apple instance. We'll see maybe they say that you know, developers should be able to link out to their own websites or whatever it is. We'll see this kind of gradually chip away at some of this power. And I think we'll probably see Apple and Google kind of mirror each other on this because I think that if it happens to one, it's sort of inevitable that if there could be legal action that makes it happen to the other, and it's probably cheaper for them to just implement the same thing than it is to kind of go through another legal battle. I think we'll see that for a while. And then I think what we're going to see at the same time is kind of governments coming in. Um, we have like the Digital Markets Act in the um, the EU. We have kind of, there's a an app fairness bill um, kind of in the US, there's sort of a handful of, we'll see some of these things start to stick. Like we obviously saw it with kind of Apple caving to kind of the EU on like USB-C on the new on the new iPhone and, and things like that. I think that stuff will start to happen. And then I think that, I don't know whether this is going to be a year from now or three years from now or, or whatever. I think we'll see a complete reversal, probably from Apple rather than from Google, where they will open up all of this stuff to competition. They'll figure out some other ways to monetize and then they'll make everyone think it was their idea the whole time because they do this with everything. You see this with like USB-C now, like kind of you saw this with EU mandating that the phone has USB-C and then we have an Apple announcement where they're like, we've created this great new innovation of USB-C and it's the best thing ever and sort of your welcome world. And they're just reacting to some regulation. But I think that in a few years' time, like we'll start to chip away at this stuff. The regulators will come in, kind of they'll order it down some more. And then there will be a WWDC or one of these keynotes from Apple or Google or somebody where they flip this whole thing and 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 sort of they open everything up. But it'll be like kind of we're the best company in the world because look at what we did. We opened this up and sort of innovation and freedom and, and sort of all of this stuff. And great. If they want to take credit for it, cool. As long as I think <laughs> kind of developers get a kind of a better way to sell their products and, and we can build these great billing experiences and kind of we can open this up to kind of true competition. Um, I think it would be a great, great win. So the title of the article you wrote for Paddle is the shift from app to web. Can you tell us a bit about that shift and what it means for developers and payment companies specifically? sort of it's timely that we're doing this now because like there's been like a I don't know if you remember like a year ago or a year and a half ago there was this big drama that was that was happening around um 37 signals the folks who make Basecamp, their new email app called hey 
and they were trying to get the 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 iOS or the the mobile version of this email app kind of in the app store. Right. And they didn't want to pay Apple's thirty percent fee, and they said, "Fine, like we won't sell, we won't even take any money in the app ever. Like we won't take any payments in the app, but we do want to be able to offer an app. And if you're an existing A customer, you should be able to log in and and kind of kind of read your email and stuff." That happened like a year and a half, two years, whatever it was ago, and and. Apple, they they caused such a storm on on like Twitter and everything else that Apple actually changed their developer guidelines to specifically kind of account for this sort of use case. And it's been a long-standing thing that if um, for like enterprise products, that if you're if you're Salesforce, um, just because you just because Salesforce is software and it costs several hundred thousand dollars a year, Apple's not expecting that the average Salesforce user downloading the app is going to do an in-app purchase for $300,000 for their Salesforce license. And if it's a kind of client-only thing, you have to have an account log in, um, you can you can use it. And we're seeing the same thing right now happen again with Hey as well, trying to get that calendar app. They've just released a calendar app, trying to get this calendar app in the app store and Apple's doing the same thing again of saying that like you don't allow the payments in, in the applications. So... David, the one of the founders of 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 Basecamp and notorious like Twitter sh- poster, sort of is kind of like going on this rant at the moment, um, and is kind of very related to this kind of app to web kind of thing of like, and he's one of the the kind of main contributors or early founders of Ruby on Rails, um, the the kind of programming framework as well of saying that like this whole idea of native applications and all of this stuff happening natively in these apps that you have to download from the app store is kind of bullshit. And it's and it's like, we should kill this. Like the web and web technologies and things like this have come along so much that you can build really great experiences. You can build really great software that runs in the browser on the phone. Like it's, it's we're not at this point now where kind of, and like things like, functionality on the device sort of just doesn't work unless it's native. Like you can have, you can use the camera, you can send notifications, you can do all of these things that previously you needed um, a, a native application for. You can now do with all of these web-based technologies. So this idea of like this shift from from app to web, I think initially started in in the realm of, of, of actually all of these like payment related things and 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 kind of account management and administration things are going to shift from the applications to the web. And I actually think that that is true. And we're starting to see companies kind of either to get around these 30% kind of fees or things like that, shift a lot of that infrastructure to the web. But I think that like the, our scope initially, when I kind of wrote that, the scope that we were talking about was probably too narrow. And actually now what we're seeing, and it's really been playing out over the last like two weeks, is companies like 37signals and Hey saying like we can build as good of an app like an email app or calendar app like using these web-based technologies that feels like a mobile app that feels native it feels all these things like we can build all of that stuff and just bypass all of these systems completely and provide just as good an experience and i think that like we're going to increasingly see that more and more and i think companies are going to start with this shift from app to web for for the stuff to kind of get around a lot of these these fees and and or it makes kind of economic sense to that business to do so with like billing infrastructure and things like that. But I think eventually I think we're seeing this kind of reversal of everything has to be a native application 
and kind of folks like Hay and others are going to kind of lead that charge into sort of how do we make kind of web-based experiences and applications feel like native kind of first-class citizens. And I think it's, it's all of this stuff's born out of frustration. It's these folks who are building these businesses and are building these apps being like, why the hell do I have to put up with this, this stuff, whether it's paying 30% or having to have every version of my application that I want to give to a customer kind of reviewed by someone else to make sure that it meets their kind of arbitrary guidelines when I can build an equivalent product that is as good, if not better, because it's more flexible and distributed directly. Um, and I think that we're going to increasingly see more and more of that. I have a bit of a, a theory on this myself, uh, based on something you had mentioned previously. Is there a downside or risks to opening this up? If Apple and Google came together and Kumbaya tomorrow were like, all right, fine, we're doing this for the developers. Like, Is, is there a downside to there being more open competition that perhaps would hurt developers in this in this case, where as they are protected now? I don't think so. Um, and it's really easy to say that when you kind of have a horse in the race, but I think that like the web itself and software and SaaS generally has thrived from kind of open competition. Like companies, like it's as much of a struggle for companies to get a new customer or acquire a new customer on the web as it is in these app stores. It's not like these app stores solve that problem completely. There is shitty, harmful websites that exist that you shouldn't go to that sort of kind of try and scam old people. And those apps still exist. Like with these, um, even with these review processes and things like that, like it's not like everybody's immune to kind of this and this the safest environment that exists. All of these problems exist in both places. And I, I think that my, my feeling is that if this is opened up, to competition, like whether that's competition on payments, whether it's competition more broadly, if like actually these app stores sort of cease to be gatekeepers. I think we have an app environment that just looks a lot like the web environment that we've existed in for kind of 20, 30 years and has been pretty great. And hopefully it's just that with fewer gatekeepers, with fewer of these like egregious fees um, that developers have to pay and and really just a, a kind of a more fruitful environment for, for these people to build applications and build businesses without sort of some strange overlord telling them what they can and can't do. What advice would you give the new developers that are entering this market um, in light of all these changes? I think that now more than ever, sort of like we're sitting in this very weird moment where it, it's sort of like, it's like Schrodinger's verdict. Like we don't know whether it's going to go down in one direction or the other. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know how extreme it's going to happen sort of or even if these punishments sort of come down and open this stuff up we don't know how long the appeals process is going to take we don't know what the implementation that then google or apple goes away and creates um like is going to look like so i would say like the biggest thing is is just building with optionality like building with flexibility in mind building with sort of try to abstract away kind of a lot of this sort of your reliance on different kind of providers to do stuff. Don't rely on the app store version of doing something. Don't rely on the the play store version of doing something. I think that in a lot of instances, you're still going to have to use that solutions, especially in the short term. But it's it's like, I think, unfortunately, in the short term, there is going to be a greater kind of impetus on developers to have to build their own kind of pieces of infrastructure that kind of bridge these different things. But the main piece of advice would be like build in such a way that gives you optionality 
for whatever these scenarios have happen and whenever they happen. There is a version of this where kind of like for the next couple of years until sort of the regulatory piece happens, that the the judgment and the Google case doesn't really stick and, and that the the actual kind of like punishment or remedy for this isn't something that actually has much teeth to it and Google find a way around it very quickly. And then we have to kind of go through this whole thing again of, of somebody suing somebody until, until this happens. So it would be a case of don't build this in a way where you're banking on that being the the outcome being that you're going to be able to take payments in any way you like. Equally, don't bank on that not happening. So I think just build with flexibility and optionality in mind and 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 sort of kind of really think through some of these decisions that you're going to make, especially if you're building for the long term. And yeah, I think sort of experiment and hopefully when when folks like um, like us, like Paddle, are able to, to help developers in this instance, we can do that in such a way that that makes it as easily as humanly possible to kind of replace one thing for another. Um, but I think that given that we don't know exactly um, how the likes of Apple and Google are going to implement whatever their solution is to whatever court order or it is that they're told to do, I think you just have to assume sort of the worst and thus um, kind of plan for as much flexibility and, and non-reliance on any one party as you possibly can. And I think there are some interesting tools, like speaking not in an unbiased way. I think there's some interesting tools like Revenue Cat, who kind of provide this this sort of bridge between a developer who wants to implement in-app purchases, for example, can implement Revenue Cat, and then they do all of the the um, the kind of implementation behind the scenes with whatever underlying kind of provider monetization you use. So I'm hoping that the tools like that will be able to make this much easier for developers along down the line where like you've integrated with this revenue cat kind of abstraction layer. And if you want to swap out Apple for hopefully paddle or hopefully something else in the future, you'll be able to without kind of fully um, ripping kind of your business to pieces. But yeah, I think just build with optionality in mind. Correct me if I, I get the percentages wrong here, but I know that paddles proposing in rather than the 30, 15 to 30% charges uh, that Google and Apple would make, Paddle would charge, I think it's like 10%. I know that as just, you know, with the institutional knowledge of working at Paddle, what you get, but that uh, optionality that you were just talking about, what are developers getting from Paddle from that 10%, whereas maybe it might be more alluring of like, oh, only 4%, like something that Spotify gets. What, what, are, what are they getting with that extra percentage? On the pricing specifically, we decided to make it kind of like a, sort of a bifurcated price. So for transactions that are $10 or less, it'll be 10%. And for transactions over $10, it'll be 5.50, which basically means that you pay sort of the lesser of 5.50 or 10% dependent on um, kind of the size of the transaction. So the vast majority of developers will actually pay much less than 10% um, kind of when they actually start kind of processing through Paddle. I think the main reasons um, or kind of like, what do you get with Paddle that you don't get with the App Store or kind of vice versa, I think is we want to provide these developers with flexible infrastructure that solves all of these kind of like business headache challenges that come associated with taking payments from people around the world, taxes and compliance and sort of all this stuff. Like give them completely remove them from the scope of having to deal with all of that complexity in a similar way to they're completely removed from the scope of dealing with that complexity with an app store, but give them full flexibility 
around things like price points. Like with with the App Store, you can't actually decide how much your product costs. Like you can't actually set a price. You have to choose a price from a list of price tiers. So like if you go on the App Store, you'll notice that everything is like 99 cents or 199 or 299 or like whatever it is. You can't actually choose like I want to sell for 150 or I want to sell for 10 bucks flat. Like it has to it has to be a predefined price that Apple has specified and you choose one of those tiers. So kind of flexible pricing is like one of them. But like when you really think that through, it's not the difference between selling something for 199 versus two bucks is actually the ability to charge in a way that's like commensurate with with the way that people use your product. So one of the things that we do a lot of at Paddle, and I think we we speak a lot about as well as is value-based pricing and usage-based pricing and, and things like this. Like there is a mechanism for being able to do any of those kinds of things in any of these app stores. So you're kind of given very broad blunt instruments in order to like how you monetize and and sort of things like this. So we want to give all of that kind of compliant infrastructure for people to be able to run their business, but with infinite amounts of flexibility of how they price, what billing models they use. Um, we want to give access to more payment methods than would otherwise be available um, to them using kind of these stores as well to hopefully improve their conversion and kind of help them improve retention as well over time, as well as giving them a, a, a bit more of a direct relationship with their kind of end customer as well. Things like cancellations, like cancellations on the app store, like the developer has no control over. They can't, um, like you have to, if you ever tried to cancel something on um, the app store, you actually have to go into the settings on your phone and kind of just cancel it from there. Um, so like you can't, um, you, there may be a way to kind of kind of do it like an interstitial version of that in app, but it's certainly not like a customizable experience. A developer can't go and um, maybe offer you a discount or the ability to pause a subscription if like, and this is like a big thing for something like, imagine you had a, a travel app that you use periodic. It's like 10 bucks a month, but you use it periodically. Well, maybe like over over the, the winter, you're not going to, or like over Christmas or something like that, you're not going to travel so much. So they see a ton of cancellations um, of this subscription then when people are traveling. There's no ability for them to offer any alternative to cancellation. There's no, oh, why don't you pause this? Or like, we'll give you a month free or, or whatever it is. So like that, there is just, this inherent lack of flexibility that I think that we want to give um, to these developers when it comes to um, the ability to really just own their own business. Like sort of, it shouldn't be on them to figure out which one of Apple's or Google's boxes that they fit into and rather kind of let's give them the infrastructure to be able to do whatever it is that they want to. Well, we could talk, I feel like another hour or so about how Paddle's trying to uh, solve some of these problems in Google and Apple. Apple are creating. But thanks so much for um, coming on, Christian. Is there anything, you know, should we send folks to your LinkedIn, your Twitter? Is there anywhere, anything you want to plug at this point other than Paddle? Uh, yeah, I'm going to plug Paddle. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, kind of feel free to follow me there. Or if you want to speak more about this or you're a developer and kind of you're trying to figure out how you navigate this whole situation of billing in the app store and everything, I'm just Christian at Paddle.com if you want to reach out. I'm more than happy to spend time with, with anybody or kind of hop on a call or if we happen to be at the same place at the same time, kind of meet up and have a coffee and, and sort of hopefully help you navigate um, some of some of this stuff. Mm-hmm.